Hello, and welcome to the all-new Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles, literary director here at The Bookshop. If you enjoy these conversations and would like to spend even more of 2022 at Kilometre Zero in Paris, you can now subscribe for just €3 Euros a month. For that, you'll get exclusive access to regular bonus episodes, including an initiation into the world of rare book collecting, the chance to expand your reading horizons with recommendations from our team of specialised and passionate booksellers, hand-picked classic interviews from our archive, and an insight into what makes your favourite writers tick as they answer searching questions from our cafe's Proust questionnaire. You can now sign up directly in Spotify and Apple Podcasts, or for users of other podcast apps through Patreon. Links to all three are available in the show notes. All money raised through these subscriptions goes to supporting Friends of Shakespeare and Company, the bookshop's non-profit, created to fund our non-commercial activities, from the Upstairs Reading Library to the Writers in Residence programme to our charitable collaborations and our free events. We're very grateful for your support. Today I'm finally joined in the Reading Library by Holly McNish and Michael Peterson. Holly is a poet who won the Ted Hughes Award for her collection Nobody Told Me and has published four other collections including Papers, Cherry Pie and most recently Slug, which Red Magazine called A Tribute to Life Itself. She's also recently adapted Sophocles' Antigone into a new version, which shines fresh light on the ancient text as well as on the world we inhabit now. Michael Peterson is a prize-winning Scottish poet and author. His second collection, Oyster, was published in 2017 and was illustrated and performed as a live show with Scott Hutchinson. His forthcoming memoir, Boy Friends, is a paean to male friendship and a meditation on grief inspired by Hutchinson's passing. Peterson also co-founded Noiriki, a prize-winning arts collective that has produced cutting-edge shows around the world for over 10 years. Holly, Michael, welcome to Shakespeare and Company. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much, Adam. Um, I said finally in our um, introduction, because as we were talking about before we started recording, um, we've been corresponding since, um, since 2018. Yeah, October <laughs> 2018. We've Ever since I, I first did that Robert Louis Stevenson residency in November 2015, we've been trying to make a bit of a habit to come back to Paris in November and do something to do with the books, whether it's a live show or a visitation or something like that. So we've ended up putting on always going to you as a first choice to see if there, if, if there was any slots available. <laughs> but we tend to be a bit haphazard in our arrangements. Uh, and it, when it finally looked like we might be closing in on a, on a date to make it happen here, COVID happened. Yeah. yeah. Now, just as an aside, you mentioned the Robert Louis Stevenson Fellowship. This is the second conversation I've had in the last few months about this, because I interviewed the Scottish writer David Keenan, who also had this fellowship. And that was the first I'd heard of this thing. And it sounds like the most remarkable uh, thing. It's it's an incredible thing. It's one of those moments that it makes you uh, feel really purposeful to be Scottish and working in literature. Obviously, it's in homage of Robert Louis Stevenson, author of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Children's Garden of Verses, um, Treasure Island, all of these different books. So it's a real, it's run by the Stevenson estate and the Scottish Book Trust, and they select a little piddling of Scottish writers every year to send over to Grace sur um, where obviously Stevenson wrote a lot of his most sort of lustrous work but also met his wife-to-be Fanny Osborne so you know there was the there was actual you know physical lusty lushness yeah, yeah. in the air as well as the literary stuff um, and you stay in Hotel Chimignon 
you you're right by the river you get to swan about being the sort of swankiest writer that you could ever imagine yourself being i should say for, for our listeners here both holly and i are sighing and looking kind of envious and rolling our eyes and regretting not being scottish i imagine yeah, basically i was gonna say i've always been quite sort of envious of people who are scottish because uh-huh. my mum and dad are scottish so i've always sort of wanted to be more scottish could that not be and an then, end for this fellowship uh-huh. i'm not sure i'm not sure if it goes on if it goes on the parents i wish and now i want to be scottish even more than ever yeah it sounds amazing well when the uk I've breaks been, I've been up you get your scottish passport yeah, yeah, yeah that's exactly it. yeah it's definitely i'm i'm a sort of a serial residency guy uh, there's loads of brilliant ones in the highland and cove park and different places mm-hmm. in scotland managed to do a lot of this new book that i started writing i'd start uh, wrote and conceived mostly in bill drummond's curfew tower in northern ireland in a place called cushendall uh-huh. sort of looking back at scotland so i've done a lot of residencies but the robert louise stevenson one is the one that i mean it's almost fictionally romantic how beautiful it is and there's there's rumors awry that it, um that part of Disney's Beauty and the Beast was actually modelled on uh, the elements of Grisler right, Leon. Yeah. And I guess you're just steeped in that Stevenson history at the same time. There's a prize money money uh, aspect to it as well. Um, and because you've got custodianship of this brilliant building, it's also a very good dating opportunity if you're uh. single. You know, <laughs> pinging in and out of Paris and inviting people to join so you in your chateau. <laughs> And you should pretend it's your pad. Is that oh, the yeah. idea? I mean, for that period of time, it is. So there's there's only a sort of slight bit of mendacity in that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I dream of living there. I've been there as a as a visitor, as an English outside <laughs> outside visitor. It would be amazing to live there. It's just the sort of perfect communal. Have your own flat. Have shared living spaces. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, I wonder. Robert Louis Stevenson lived in Bournemouth, which is where I was born. Like maybe. Maybe there's some connection there. Maybe I can yeah. <laughs> yeah. wangle my way in. I think so. That ain't going to happen, is it? Um, so it's, it's, it's November 2021 as we speak. This podcast will be going out in a few months' time in, in February 2022, which just sounds incredible coming off the tongue. Yeah. So, And you're also in town for a performance tonight. So the two of you and Gemma Kearney at the Highlander just down the road, the Scottish pub. Yeah. Um, could you just, I know it's going to be in the past, but you guys come back quite regularly. Could you give our listeners a little bit of an idea of what, they're going to expect like when when they come to a, a performance of the three of you what do they, what do they get so it was michael that organized that i have to give you the credit for it it is in the highlander which is a scottish pub uh-huh. but a beautiful scottish pub in <laughs> paris a beautiful scottish it <laughs> is a beautiful i feel, I feel like well, not, not that it wouldn't be they are all beautiful yeah it's even a bit uh, coming to paris and doing it in a scottish <laughs> pub <laughs> but it's a beautiful sort of underground cavey feel to it and that's where we did it before and it's just a lovely like very squashed crowded bit sweaty for poetry night is a for me mm-hmm. it's a perfect location to do it in and we all just get up and, and read some poems basically yeah, yeah. Well, Gemma reads from her book uh-huh. um and we tend to chat and read poetry and then mingle with people afterwards yeah 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 in my defense it was actually a french <laughs> journalist that recommended okay. it to me <laughs> i did true. this interview years ago for uh, Les Echoes and it was oh, yeah. a guy Adrian one of the journalists from there and he was doing a piece comparing Paris bookshop culture to Edinburgh's independent mm-hmm. bookshop culture oh, I guess we've got yeah. lots of new bookshops popping up one of Edinburgh's central banks has turned into an indie bookshop into toppings wow. so it's it's almost in the reverse of what most cities are going through yeah. at this point in time so um and he was saying a lot of the 
reading culture tends to be only around a few bookshops mm-hmm. in France where he felt like that was pretty pervasive in Edinburgh. So he was doing this sort of forensic case study of all the different bookshops. So I got in contact with him in terms of uh, a reading after we found out there was no space here. Um, <laughs> you don't have to keep saying that. It's my caveat. Um, and he said, look, I'm not taking the piss, but I'm going to recommend to you this place, yeah. The Highlander. And he says, but underneath it, it's oh, got this old cave. Yeah. And he said, it feels like old town Edinburgh from uh-huh. what I've seen. And it is. It just holds the noise. There's a sort of small like thrumming echo in the air. But because me, Gemma, and me and Holly especially, but Gemma comes in for quite a few of them, do so many shows together. We're like, we're quite a literary family. We've all got the same agent. We, we, we read a lot together. We spend a lot of time together. We hopefully feel like the shows, even though they're so bespokely ours in terms of the different reading styles, it still does feel like one big conversation mm-hmm. with the three of us and we're cross-referring back to each other and we we always like pass on the baton by inter- introducing each other. So I think there's a really like nourished feel. Yeah. yeah, and with the audience, it's so friendly compared to it. Not that the other gigs aren't, but if it's a sort of bigger gig, then it's yeah. a bit, there's a bit of distance really. Or you're sort of standing behind a yeah. table signing books after and that's the chat. How many but, people yeah. pack in? It's like, what, 40, 50 people? Is that the... Yeah, I think we... I think it's meant to be, but I think we had about 60. I think we had about 90 in there last time. <laughs> so we made it, we specifically sold less tickets this time. This time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We uh, thought, give them a bit more space. People are just creeping back yeah, into it. Yeah, it's sort of around the corner. There are little kind of corner cubby yeah, holes and stuff, which yeah. I love, but it's not very easy to see through. But uh, yeah, it's great. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. I love it. I love we, that sort of venue. We learnt our lesson. I guess we maybe sold like 50 public tickets last time and then the guest list just started growing uh, and growing. <laughs> as guest as lists more, tend to do. Yeah, yeah. More people had friends in town. But yeah. like, for example, for this one as well, I guess when we do these away shows, we, we plot a sort of social rubric to them. And uh, John Gray, one of our favourite cover designers, is coming over. And mm. Becky, our agent's coming over. Some friends are coming over from uh, Edinburgh. Mike, so. Michael has like his his friends come over quite a lot when, when you book gigs, don't they? They're all like, all right, great, you'll come. It's not a following because it's your, your mates yeah. and stuff, but it's really nice. And is the audience like, it's mostly Anglophones or do you get French people? I think both. Well? I mean, yeah. There's, yeah. There's, there's, there was a mixture last time. Mm. There was quite There were quite a lot of locals yeah and then i guess i my not all of them but there, there's often quite a lot of parents that follow me because i write quite a lot about parenting yeah, yeah, sure. and, and mothers in particular but quite a lot of midwives mm-hmm. so we had quite which a lot I, of midwives. yeah I, it's there's always a sort of i'd say about five to ten percent of my audiences are often yeah. <laughs> so i'm sure just, there were a few just as an aside the most heroic profession in the world, like sort of, you know, and I'm speaking from sort of recent experience. But wow. You, I mean, you, you come out of the sort of the the birthing room thinking, you know, these people are, yeah. you know, they need they need to be paid more. They need to be totally. treated better. They yeah, need... there's marches going on at the moment in the UK for them this yeah. week. They're all marching for exactly that. Yeah. Better pay, less uh, working. Good luck in the UK. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> Holly is a big hitter in the international midwifery conferences. <laughs> and I was going to say, I wasn't going to read it today. keynote speaker but... in town. But <laughs> I've, got, I've got a poem that I did, did last night. Um, I've been sort of advertising this march going on. And I've got a poem where I admit to sort of pretending to be a midwife. My mum's a nurse uh-huh. and she's always quite funny about uh, if, if after, a, <laughs> after a gig, I had to my mum at 
uh, a gig. She's come to about three, I think, in, yeah. in all of my sort of ten years of readings. But she was at one, and somebody said, "Oh, yes, must be tired signing these books." And my mum was like, "Are you? Are you tired?" <laughs> <laughs> I was like, "No, I'm not. I'm never tired as a poet like that." It's a ridiculous thing. So to when say, people so, ask yeah. you what you do, you go, "You don't say poet. You say midwife." <laughs> yeah, I've said that three times, and I admitted it to a bunch of midwives yesterday because <laughs> I've just been to a conference. And I thought you look amazing, and then I felt terrible. So I've got a poem that admits to yeah, uh -huh. lying occasionally. <laughs> I'd never do nurse because I feel like my mum would be on my shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> midwife. We've not got a midwife in the family. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's it's terrible funny. getting the credit without doing any of the work. So I'll not do that again. Uh -huh. Yeah. And so, so yeah, you know the the poetry. It's not a not the most exhausting profession. Out it's not. It, it amazes me when people say it is. No, it is not. Yeah, having having teachers and nurses in the family. If I yeah, said yeah. that, I, I know they'd hear. It's it's funny, isn't it? I was going to talk with this about with you both about this a bit later, but since it's kind of edging that way, like because. Um, both of you sort of deal with concepts of class in your work. And that seems to be, it's, it's a particular bugbear of mine, I think, that's a sort of the book world generally is a sort of, particularly in London. I mean, I don't know the American book world and I don't know the sort of the Scottish scene, but like it's a sort of such a staunchly middle class yeah. um, profession in a way. Yeah, exactly. And then, then, then most of the gatekeepers to the, you know, publication contracts or things like that yeah. that it's sort of the the view you just expressed there the sort of pointing out there the kind of the ridiculousness of being a kind of an exhausted poet <laughs> yeah. i think scotland's better just because universities are free in scotland mm -hmm. yeah. so I, I feel like just going in scotland a lot and seeing that scene i think just the art scene in general is way more diverse in terms of because i find i i would definitely call myself very middle class but mm. even that is like a different type of middle class that I found in the publishing world and yeah. I guess even going to a state school I've, is a real minority mm -hmm. in the world which I didn't really expect and yeah, it's sort yeah, of yeah. shocking um, but I think Scotland is definitely better and mm -hmm. the, the, yeah just in the arts in general for that I think there is a lot of support I mean you've got a lot of really uh, great working class uh, writers voices who are dealing with working class issues a lot of the times and, you know, raising erudition about it, but mostly are just writing incredible literature. Yeah. Jackie Kay, Je Jenny Fagan, Irvin Welsh, a lot of, like, all of these writers all come from working class backgrounds and they do engage with the working class bias that happens in literature, but they engage with it by producing sort of peerless literature that yeah, just yeah. means people have to listen to them. Yeah. But there is that moment where a lot of writers get published in Scotland on, on really reputable publishing houses. Polygon, who did all of my books, and obviously Canongate are different because they're very big down south mm -hmm. and, and worldwide as well. But a lot of the Scottish publishing houses, when Scottish writers then try and move to London publishing mm -hmm. houses to reach a bigger audience, or tr Scottish publishing houses try to integrate into a lot of the UK literature festivals, mm -hmm they do come up against obstacles and stymies and it's always been the big thing. Do you have to, A, physically move to London yourself as a writer or, or down south or, or B, move to a London publishing house to be able to extend the reach of it all? Like where, where does this conversation go from that perspective? And it's still very much ongoing. Um, I feel like a, like a good supportive agent can, mm -hmm. can definitely break those boundaries for you and I've, yeah. I've been very... Uh, lucky in working with Becky who works with Holly and Kay Tempest and Gemma Kearney and all these people as well she's very much 
mind her own thing but uh, she's dedicated she's quite dedicated to that as well isn't she yeah signing like di- a diversity of authors in that yeah. in that way i guess also the sort of support networks like what you were saying earlier about the arts emergency fund and things like that it's just amazing how many i guess writers come from the writing world in the mm. first place which mm-hmm. is such a it's, it's like in any in any um profession isn't it but having that cultural capital yeah that yeah, you just yeah. don't you just don't often get i guess from a certain background or going to a certain school, mm-hmm. it's just it's just non-existent. The idea yeah. of having an uncle or somebody that can introduce you to somebody, yeah, and yeah. I found the poetry world really welcoming in that way, really supportive and yeah. really supportive of. I've had quite a lot of angrier, uh, not angry, angry in a like loving way, emails back <laughs> when I've given. <laughs> And when I've given like a fee yeah. or something, or or organise all my own tours, and I had a venue in Scotland actually, it was the Oranmore that replied to my third third time of um, doing a gig at this mm. venue, and they said, "Yeah, that's great, right? We'll take your you know your fee that you've offered, but we'll raise it because that's what you should be doing now." And then I've had people saying, "Oh no, this person's asked for this much," like <laughs> email me back. So there's been quite a that's quite a sort of telling off, supportive, bolstering. I found. Yeah. Um, community since starting doing poetry readings and it's breaking out of the literary the book festivals are brilliant i love yeah. them relish them dedicate them to them with you know zealotry um <laughs> as we were saying at edinburgh i'll be there for the month you know, yeah. the furniture. <laughs> Not just for the soup. but it's making sure you get in about of audiences outside of that uh-huh. and it's almost for us it was building our own thing with noiriki I get booked to support bands a lot. I've opened for like Idlewild at the Glasgow Battlelands on a Saturday oh my night. God, I saw them probably a dozen times when I was a teenager. So oh, it was it was like the twenty fifth anniversary shows I was opening oh, for. for oh, that makes me feel <laughs> Did you have to say that? <laughs> um, so it's just getting it out of the circuit of it all as well. And you see it, these things, and I know it's cliched, and I know you know everybody claims to have experienced it sometime, but see when you take these risks and you support bands and mm. you know much bigger audiences, you're fighting for the audience and you do have to yeah. reconstruct your set. Yeah. The number of people that come up to you afterwards saying, I've never been to a poetry gig, didn't think poetry mm. was for, for me, I'm now going to get your book and then further than that if they enjoy the book I get emails of people asking to recommend more poets as someone yes. that's not um, that's someone that's not really engaged in poetic literature before so it's just taking risks in terms of building shows yourself like we put yeah. on so many of our shows you organise your own tours yeah. we use unusual spaces we try and go to cities that don't have a book festival at the heart of them mm. um, and it's just being quite brazen and your approach to that as well and it's, it's a risk some of the some of the shows will flop you, <laughs> yes. but. and people people are awkward as well in in places where they don't have a lot of and it's i don't i don't say that in terms of like i've been to some some places where they've sort of had this horribly cringy idea of like putting cultural events into places where they deem them needed sort right. of thing okay. so yeah, i don't yeah. mean like that um but because I find that it's terrible sometimes. Very think, well-meaning, but kind yeah, of condescending. Yeah, like yeah, I had yeah. to do, to be honest, in Paris, actually, I had to, uh, after doing one of the slams, it was in, in Bobigny. Oh, yeah. It was like the Slam du Monde. And um, when I just started out reading and ended up weirdly being in that, and I had one thing where we had to um, do poetry on the public buses in the morning, uh-huh. as, it, as if that's what oh, people man. want when they're sort of going <laughs> to work. And I remember thinking... 
oh, oh. <laughs> this is really hard but there's so there's so much outreach and it is really nice in a yeah, way yeah. But, so there's a balance and I was thinking I've never I've never done a supported a band but I feel like my midwifery conferences are like my uh, <laughs> my, my form of oh, the, they could of the be concert. tough crowds those oh, midwives yeah. <laughs> and, and at, the, yeah, at the conferences there's a lot of booze in the evening so it's great yeah. <laughs> that's, that's my that's my rock concert well let's let's talk about the shows that you put on then like Noiriki then what so what, what is the kind of, what's the, the founding principle? What's the concept behind it? So it started out of, I guess, a frustration of all of the, what we felt a lot of the literary events were missing out on. Uh-huh. And it, I guess just a sort of selfish curatorial urge to put on the exact type of event you wanted to go to. And that was, for me, short, punchy slots that were, in terms of the literary perspective, would be able to went over a new audience that came to see a mm. big musical name. We also wanted to punctuate the show with film. Like, so we used a lot of avant-garde animation. There's a really big oh, right. and interesting animation network. Obviously, Sylvie and Chamon uh, was over in Edinburgh, Edinburgh College of Art, making a link in Paris and Edinburgh and mm. in the animation world. This big group of BAFTA-winning animators sprung out of ECA, the art school there. They moved into Summer Hall, so we started absorbing a lot of that sort of thing. So it was it was the magazine salon type of environment. It was allowing us to build, you know... Uh, a really established spoken word poet alongside you know Douglas Dunn or Don Patterson or someone mm-hmm. that was, you know could really enthrall an audience but was definitely deemed one of the Faber big hitters or the OBE style poetries and it was just experiment pulling together as diverse uh, uh, social diaspora as we kept in the city yeah. we felt like everyone was so fractured in what in the type of events we were going to but we got on so well with this group of people sitting around the table socially why weren't we building events that could pull them together in a performative aspect so it was just dissecting that um, into its different components to see what would pull all of these different mm-hmm. people in and when we first started it it was between me and a guy Kevin Williamson so it was a generational thing he'd ran Rebel Inc that became a pre- imprint oh, yeah, of yeah. Canongate so he was publishing like Irvin Welsh and Laura yeah. Hurd and Alan Warner all these writers early on so that had all that had debunked um uh, but he still had great connections with all of that so he brought all of these writers of a more mature and established vintage into the show whereas I was around people releasing their first chat books reading mm-hmm. at house parties you know bumping EPs at markets yeah. so pulling these two groups together was I guess the vivaciousness of it all and then the team built up but built unusually it wasn't writers that joined us it was a prize winning photographer Kat Gollick who like uh-huh. did a lot of event photography and had a unique aspect uh, an outlook on events and it was a guy Davy Miller who was part of this you know, Andrew Weatherall linked mm. electronic pioneer band Finney Tripe. So he was bringing this sort of musical club element, showing how we could pull the club into Noiriki. And Kat was talking about the visual and the arts aesthetic. So it was a real, almost incongruous and disparate group of minds that mm-hmm. made these events into something quite unusual. And it was a talking point. Yeah. Um, people weren't getting into them. They were too busy too quickly. And I uh-huh. think we were quite fortunate about that. Um and I think that's where me and Holly came together as well. It was an interest of sort of breaking the formula and putting on different types of shows. And mm. um, the first events Holly did with us, for example, were to do with, um, is it Kim Longinotto, Longinotto, the Californian Oscar winning director was okay. making a film called Selma, not the not the big yeah. one, but that was about <laughs> a South Indian female poet that yeah. became the biggest mm. voice in oh, female yeah. poetry. That's, and that's, That film is just, 
mind blown, isn't it? So we brought you in to read poetry and be part of the panel for that. And then the next one was a response to the Titian exhibition in the Mm. National Gallery. We had people from like Optimo and Tamdine Byrne and uh, Holly Reading and like responding to these Titian paintings. So there was a there was an activity in it which was taking bites out of all of these different cultural scenes and And pulling them together. It's amazing how unique it is as well, and how uh, obviously I've not been to every art scene in the world but how I've just I still haven't been to other events like that Mm -hmm. it's amazing as a poet getting asked to read poems at a gig where there are bands and Uh filmmakers or short animations being shown Mm. it just doesn't happen like it's so I don't know you have you have poetry with poetry and it seems to be such a sort of exclusive um even the kind of gigs and it's so nice as a it's so nice as a poet. <laughs> I love, I love doing Noiriki. Yeah, They're my yeah, favourite yeah. gigs to do because you get a night out to hear music as well. Uh, Not that I don't love also hearing poetry too, sure. but it's just brilliant to be, and that they're really nerve-wracking to do because uh, I guess people aren't always there to see the poetry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so you get people that have come to see Young Fathers and Charlotte Church, I think, the, uh, the ones I've done, yeah. the sort of biggest <laughs> ones, and, and then you're doing five to ten minutes of poetry and you think oof yeah. but it's not and the idea that you know the idea that people that like music won't want to hear a bit of yeah, yeah, yeah. poetry is, is, is ridiculous but actually. this is it like and this is it's kind of links back to what you were saying Michael about the uh, you know reading poetry and at, at, uh, at like concerts and you know the, yeah. what we were saying about class and stuff it's that kind of segmented sort of fractured nature yeah. of society of the arts of different sec- sectors within the arts yeah. so sort of you know novelists and poets and but then you within yeah. poetry you have slam poets as well yeah. and, and like for me i have this this sense that sort of the real sort of creative interest comes from this kind of cross-pollination comes from sort of stimuli from from unfamiliar things and uh, and different different practices different disciplines and the people doing the gigs are all inspired by each other yeah, different yeah, people. Yeah. it's not like musicians aren't inspired by poets and poets aren't inspired by dancers or, yeah, yeah, yeah. or whatever it is and it's all I, I really like well your gigs as well because it's not I think sometimes there's this idea that um, it's got to be like a sort of John Cooper Clark poet yeah. who can support a band Yeah, and I think that that's also quite annoying because uh-huh. you get you know you have poets who are very quiet I guess readers or like very established but not in any way well not showy but Mm. you know not performative in any way and the idea that you that it has to be somebody that's really you know animated on stage and is yeah I guess like that that can do a gig like that I also think is a shame Mm -hmm. and I love it when it's a mix of a mix of, of I don't even know how to describe it there's so many different labels aren't there yeah, yeah, yeah. you know somebody sort of standing quietly reading from a book mm. with somebody running about the stage with a poem that they've specifically written for an audience <laughs> yeah, you yeah. know and they can go together and people like them all and those poets also like hearing each other yeah there's this ridiculous separation of them in a lot of well and it's even, always a newspaper and even sometimes there can be a sort of um even if the reaction is not necessarily a positive one i mean we were talking before the recording about stand-up comedy and you put me in mind of um like back in the day, I think it was like the 70s, 80s, this comedian called Ted Chippington used to support bands like The Fall and would sort of 
routinely get kind of bottled off the stage and get this very sort of dry... Probably very... sometimes by the fall. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, but, like, there's something in that energy as well. In yeah. fact, like, it doesn't always have to go well for for, for something to come out yeah. of it. Yeah. It's just the risk in it because you're doing the book festivals and you're doing the indie bookshops alongside it. So you just got to throw yourself into these situations yeah. almost cumbersomely sometimes and, and see what comes out of the other side of it. I mean, I even... In a quite a rudimentary way, even with the poetry books, I took that approach to to blurbs, for example. Mm-hmm. My first poetry book, I got a blurb from Stephen Fry on the front of it, oh, right. and then the second poetry books, it was Irving Welsh and Charlotte Church. Yeah. It wasn't necessarily poets. That's it a was, dinner party, those four. Well, <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah. Also, it pushes you though, doesn't it? Because you're the gigs that I've got. I just got to mention Hoyk, Hoyk gig. I remember like doing Hoyk's that in gig the Scottish borders uh-huh. with with Noiriki, and it was it was basically just like full of local like rugby players yeah. in the audience and I remember going in I've done, I've done this quite a lot and I t- try not to now look at an audience and decide what to read or change what I'm reading right, yeah, it, yeah. as if you know what's in people's heads because sure, they you yeah. know look a certain way and I did that gig and, and sort of started to think oh I won't do this one I won't do this one and um, and afterwards it was this poem about about breastfeeding mm-hmm. basically that these these guys were all coming up to talk to me about. One of them sort of lifted me off the ground to like tell me something specific about a guy that he'd wanted to deck because he'd tried to tell his wife not to breastfeed in the camp or something. But there were so many stories. And another one with the WI I did, I mean, it was all women over 80s. Uh-huh. And I got there, panicked, and started reading these really polite poems about architecture that I'd just done with a job. And this woman shouted from the back, we're not dead yet. <laughs> I was like, do you know what, you're right. Why am I thinking that you're not going to... Getting gonna... heckled and in I the think... WI, love Yeah, right, right. And like, gigs like that, they really push you not to yeah, think yeah. that you know what's in an audience's heads. And sometimes, yeah. you obviously, you do get wrong and they're like disgusted and <laughs> walk out or whatever. Before we, because um, we're going to hear you both read in a minute, but I just also wanted to talk about um, Antigone. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> that, I mean, that, that, it's uh, it's seems to have come out of, of nowhere like it seems like quite a left turn but maybe also yeah. connects to this kind of cross-pollination this kind of breaking down of barriers between disciplines that we were talking about earlier like... yeah sort of sort of it, it just connects to me absolutely loving this one uh-huh. library in chester basically okay. so it was the the only reason that i did that i've got no background at all in uh any ancient greek theater mm-hmm. anything like that or, or theater really um but there's a there's a place in Chester called the Story House uh-huh. in England and it's this most amazing I think it's a Scandinavian designed um it's like the theatre the library and a cinema in one and it's what well, it's sole purpose of being designed that way is to stop these boundaries between the people that go to the theatre in a city the people mm. that go to a library in a city yeah. and the library's like interwoven around the whole theatre and even down to the, wow. the way that you book a ticket there's just a computer screen because they say that people find a box office quite daunting yeah. so as somebody that I guess has found theatres daunting to go into and still do sometimes even if I'm doing a gig and yeah. they're not us like can I go into this area or not um, I just love this place and they asked me if I would mm-hmm. consider it so it was basically the the artistic director of Storyhouse asked if I would uh, reimagine which yeah. I didn't really know what that meant as a word <laughs> at the beginning reimagine Antigone I think I said no about five times and then he kept asking um sort of yeah saying no you can change it and you can yeah. do this and it was it was fascinating I loved it and then they, so, they staged it and then they staged yeah. it so it, it was only ever intended to be staged for a couple of weeks but yeah. then the um Hachette wanted to publish it so yeah. now it's been 
published, which is amazing. So loads more has come out of it than I thought. That it was fascinating to do, and I've learned an entirely side, a different side of theatre. Knew nothing about ancient Greece. Knew uh-huh. nothing about these, like festival of Dionysus and festivals yeah. of pleasure, and I, yeah, just so it was really, really fun doing it. And I tried to sort of interpret it in the way that I, I found. I found out that most of these plays in ancient Greece were put on as part of like competitive. Mm week-long celebrations which included a lot of booze a lot of sex ten thousand people in a stadium watching whereas we sort of plucked them out and tried to put you know one tragedy on uh-huh. in a theater so i tried to add a bit of heckling a bit of like tomatoes being thrown at the audience uh-huh. at the beginning, a bit of sort of arguments going on and a, and a kind of background so that anyone hopefully for basically anyone like me who knew nothing about uh-huh. ancient greece could go there with no background and enjoy it which I hope I hope it did, but it was just it was great not writing about myself to be honest. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just like I mean, it's a pretty depressing <laughs> story what? in a way, but it was so good to just sit and not not be writing about my own life. Well, if you can uh, both bear to read about yourselves for us now, that would be a yeah. that would be a great pleasure. What have What have you got in store for us? So I'm gonna go first, then Holly second. Great. I thought I should probably start with. Uh, one of the poems written on the the Stevenson uh, Fellowship since we've it's been hot on the lips. Actually, weirdly, just before we came here, I was reading at Robert Louis Stevenson's 171st birthday party in his absence, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but it was also the centenary of the Robert Louis Stevenson Club in Edinburgh. So I, I just read at a big dinner for that recently. And it was, it was one of, it's a beautiful reading, but it was one of those, I'd say average age, like 75, um, so I definitely toned down uh-huh. uh, a little bit of the performative exuberance <laughs> and the language. Yeah. Um, but this is right at the start. Um, as, I, as I mentioned, it is also quite a good dating opportunity. I was on the cusp of a new relationship, I invited someone over to join me in Grèce sur Lyon, and I met them in Paris first for oysters and champagne. I thought that was, you know, the 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 paragoning start to this this date uh, i had unfortunately overlooked the fact they were a lifelong vegetarian bums to seats down at the table in every direction universities beyond this room glimmer creak sky strain though i do not notice my eyes are lit candles chatter swoops and whispered words whisk up a clamour. The clink of glasses rustles bread in baskets. She licks, wind lips, and then my oyster, kissing me, kissing sea, a lifelong vegetarian, un mer, un femme, un runaway bandit, her pink propulsive tongue, a creature of its own. No bones in tongue, nor oyster, Though a marvel nonetheless, a zinc pumped seabed filter system, oyster has many magics and mollusky mischiefs, is worthily lickable. Yet she had never licked an oyster. Her tongue recoils gingerly, processing them flavoursome fecundities. The fleshy grope is silent, is wordless. The moments after, noisy and weird, shake out this timid smile. An oyster, not to be bested, tastes, tongue, zaps, back, a shimmer to the spine from the aquatic journeyman. And I know what you're maybe thinking. 
How does your tongue taste the oyster? Oof. The answer is, it's best not to know. See, this moment, six months back, was its own never-never land. A whole hunk of would never happen, no hope in hell. Yet here we are, plucky as moon, still out in mourning, sat together in Paris's Latin Quarter, watching with the een of plotting seagulls this salt lace mystery trip unravel. I'm staring down both barrels at your stars, born out of sparks. You licked my oyster. You are the oyster liquor. One brilliantly bizarre little alien meets another for perilescent new discoveries. Clink the glass, for the very oyster you licked echoes down my throat now. The mischief in your mollusk, my tongue understands. Um, so I'm going to do a couple of little poetic prose pieces now, which is from boyfriends. So we're, we're, we're breaking out into the, into the new material now, uh, which I thought was, you know, something I would save for Shakespeare and co here. Um, so the book started off as this sort of, you know, paying to one friendship. Uh, to one friendship that had fast disappeared from the world far before it should have done. Uh, but it became something much wider and much more joyous. It became this whole sort of conceptual, um, chronological audit of all the friendships, particularly male friendships, that had, you know, furnished my life. Um, but this particular piece starts on a road trip with Scott and Holly in the sort of belly of the book. Dinner with you and Holly. These are palmary moments. No, I don't regret spending £75 on a seafood sharing platter. Aye, it was a crumb indulgent, and you called me a lush to Holly's hilarity, but we were twinned in this bonhomie. I do not regret us gorging ourselves on a platter, boasting an estimated 40 mussels, 60 prawn tails, 6 gargantuan langoustines, Twelve scallops and a heft of dipping bread, a platter most definitely intended for filling more than two bellies. Of course, there is wine. We would not do a meal such as this a disservice and be without it. The platter is its own constellation. It does not fit on in the table, for its circumference is akin to Jupiter, not decommissioned Pluto. You and Holly have to swap seats so as we can battle this formidable foe together in formation. We are leviathans, feasting with and on each other. The messy display attacks nods, nods of reverence from onlookers populating the tables in orbit around us. These nods are a cloud of praise comfortably taken. This comfort in taking praise is far too rare for brilliant you. Over yonder, the island of sky sits down to tea with us, we address it in stories and long glances cast over. On Google Maps, this water is labelled Inner Seas off the west coast of Scotland, Atlantic Ocean, a very formal name for our salty guest, the ghost at the table. Whilst eating the platter, there's a dearth of chatter. It is given way to unwavering dedication. Let it be known, this is not portentous. It is the opposite, the gooey vim of not needing chit-chat. We are apples, here's our core, sprouting pips in every belly. Even vegetarian holly soaks a muscle down. But shh, don't tell her family, or she'll never hear the end of it. This supper 
was garlic butter gorgeous, love on its tiptoes, the last meal we had together and one of your last on this whizzing planet. It isn't quite fit for purpose, but I'd surmise you'd chip in with Michael. It wasn't far off either. P.S. Yes, we ordered starters and all, but these were modest and too alluring to let pass by. The pudding you shared with Holly was one step beyond for me, but you looked cherubic splitting it, and you were often one step ahead. P.P.S. By the time the £149.50 plus £20 cash tip cleared from my bank account, three days later, you had left us, and something had left me. But right there, in that moment, we were brimful. It was love. So... I think pretty much the last editorial note I got on the book was from Alexa. We'd sort of nailed this structure which undulated and was pulled apart and put back together. Um, we'd, we'd ventured into the stories, into the timelines, but she just put this small sentence uh, of a note saying, I just want a little puff on what it was like physically grief in your body having lost someone you cherish so much not some personal anecdote about them but just the physicality of grief I think she was hoping I could sum it up in a sentence but we went for a page and a half <laughs> defying all science grief feels its hottest when newly lit before it's even started smoking before the birds know to stop singing and be forever silent before the embargo on mooting a date for the funeral's been lifted, before one of my friends knows not to throw a strop because I haven't got back to his invite for a camping trip that needs the numbers, before the notion of talking in the past tense is fathomable, before Auden's poem, Stop All the Clocks, could possibly be about you. It feels like a drug that's newly entered the body and will deliberately doddle in making the rounds inside like a virus, the flesh bullying itself, my vital organs like two best friends who've for no real reason fallen out on account of their hubris will never find a way back. Grief dissects us into our most helpless matter. My bones carry an unnatural weight in them as if the marrow is turning to lead. My gait, too, is off, like that bike with its bent wheel that required me to cycle like fuck just to make it to market less than two miles away. I'm on the cusp of crying, ordering a cappuccino, but ask for chocolate sprinkles all the same, because that's what I used to do, although I've no idea why, because I've never had a sweet tooth. I am desperate for touch, then offended by the suggestion... I find myself looking into my own eyes in every mirror I pass, eyes which have become bells that will not stop ringing until the jar cracks or the tongue falls out. Either way, it'll be over. It's been clumsy with meaning after having prided myself on exactitude where a hundred and forty characters seems a stretch. It feels like I've had my last useful thought and I'm now salvaging ideas from the mulch. Time is standing still until it races by like a cat with a bird in its belly. Mostly, I feel exhausted, slow and eddying, heavier whilst emptied of something I know will never be replenished that I will always resent living without. I am heartbroken and coarse whilst acutely thankful for all the wonderful people around me. I feel important and guilty about it. So... That was a wee sort of gooey snippet from uh, Boyfriends in the Middle. Uh, and after having noted a cat with a bird in its belly, 
I'm going to stick to the felines. We've just met young Ag Agatha as we popped into, <laughs> uh, up into the reading room here, who was lording over the room quite rightly, and, and still is, in fact, fatigued in the background. Um, and I was quite an unusual boy, you know, I had a, a, a typical, uh, atypical everything, I guess, would, would be the, the way to, to approach that subject. Um, and there was a good period of my childhood where I was convinced, in fact, I was more cat than boy. That was more feline than human child. Um, I declared myself the cat prince <laughs> and would adopt the, the mane and disposition of a cat off on a lot of playdates. And my mum would get the odd, worried or concerned call. Um, of course, taking off my clothes was, was part of that part of that transformation <laughs> and also part of that trepidation from the parents of the, the play deities. Um, so that's about this period and it is called The Cat Prince. This one's for you, Agatha. <laughs> I am the Cat Prince, I declare, already on all fours, already balls naked in the house of Hasty, where there's Adam, Hasty, Daniel and me, the Cat Prince. We're boyhood budbursts, 12 years of silly in us, Adam laughs, frantic gas, guffaws, then pegs it to his bedroom, anticipating the chase. Daniel, wavering between cat and laddie, compañero and fugitive, succumbs to the Gnostic glamour, strips naked for a full feline transformation, down to our little furs, little bloods, ready to bringe past the chide of absent classmates who might well hear of this and smite us with shame. We are cuddle kings, hankering for Adam's adulation, all moggy, moxie, we embrace the cat life, vow inurement to the side effects. Carpet burns, wind lashed, pimpling, the sacrifice of language in each falsetto yowl, as hunters, we're tasked by the Creator, our gaze a crosshair, our pounce a ripple of bravura. Who else so guilefully stalks sunbeams? We do well again. It's those damn cats again the neighbours would learn to yop as I race by with a robin red breast between my jaws and Daniel finish shitting in their rhubarb patch. It's convenient not to think of the killer in us, holding back our purr, assassin still. As we coil our new cat bodies to a spring, Adam clampers feared atop the bed. What happens next is louder than we hoped for. Adam's mum, startled by the cacophony, arrives, then screams, curtailing the playdate. Later that night, she calls my mum concerned, though my mum never mentions this. I can only assume she was wise to it. The mythos, the hieroglyphs, fathomed would soon meet the type of trouble that could really shake boys down. Long days where the teeth tear it out of us and the claws don't stop coming. But not yet, I hear her whisper, not without this moment's orchestra of feeling. As a boy, I was whiskerless, weighed down by the nest of knots squat in my belly. As a cat, I was so much more. Of course... As mother to the cat prince, she knew all this. <laughs> brilliant. Ah, that was brilliant. All right, I'm going to read a few poems. I thought I would 
I'll start with this one. So they're all from Slug. Um, this one's called Chatty, which is one of my favourite words in the English language. And I wanted to do this because I, I find it so nice. In the, the first time I came to this bookshop, I sort of thought it would be the place where you couldn't really smile or chat to people. I thought you'd have to act very, very serious. And I, I hate the fact that being sort of serious and not smiling and not being chatty is often deemed more kind of intellectual. So uh, this is a sort of ode to chattiness, I guess. And it's for uh, it's for a friend that I've known since we were in our our mother's wombs together. So she's the person that I've chatted to the most in my life. It started in our mother's skins, us rising loaves, us parasites, prenatal class, us curled inside besides ourselves with laughter. I can't prove this, it's just a guess. Our mums chat, bellies bulging buns. We punch from the inside out in telepathic unison. Walkie talkies, room to room, what I'm saying is, before we'd even left the wombs, we chatted and we chatted and we chatted. One month apart, we're out, we ball, roll around the village hall, cup our fists in pits of sand, shite our nappies, piss our pants. I steal your spade, you bite my hands, we cry into our mother's laps, mimic sounds we've overheard. What I'm saying is, before we even spoke one word, we chatted and we chatted and we chatted. You found love in teenage years, ran to mine with detailed sex. Ten years on, down the aisle, I wore the bridesmaid dress you stitched. Grandad died, you called me up, we made perfume from forget-me-nots. Found love, lost love, found love again. I gave birth first, you gave birth second. Your twins slept in passing shifts, you called me up with pumps on tits. We discussed how lonely this stuff is and we chatted, and we chatted, and we chatted. My phone buzzed, connection broke, phone buzzed again, you choked. No one spoke, silent hugs, you a widow much too young. Played the boys their father's songs, each moonlit bedtime laid them down, called me up when tears allowed, and we chatted, and we chatted, and we chatted. My gran wished her final breath, I bought a kettle for myself. Found love, found guilt, found love, broke up, broke down, broke up. You called me up. Called him darling, replanted roses in your garden. We came round to meet your newfound man, our kids now giggling in the sand. Wiped our tears when tears ran free. Another tea? We both get up. The sun comes out to warm us up. The way it always does. The way I know it always will. The way it always has. When we chat, and we chat, and we chat. Um, I'm going to read a couple of poems now from the parenting section there are seven different sections so that was in the growing up section this is a very short poem and it's called bartering with a seven-year-old i shared my body with you for months before birth the least you can do is offer me one of your crisps that's it it's a very very short poem in the book uh, this is a slightly longer one so my daughter is 11 now and um every single step of parenting i find a sort of joy and horrendous at the same time especially sort of giving things up that I found quite claustrophobic and then having this newfound freedom and being totally uh, devastated by it at the same time so this is called sweet separation first you did not need my body anymore tombstone of a star stormed out blind and screaming then you did not need my heartbeat anymore cord cut and pegged till current stopped till tide dried up, till shriveled skin. Our bitter, carnal closeness dashed into a dustbin. 
Then you didn't need me, breasts hardening, redundant, cabbage leaf companions to ease the swell of loss. Then you did not need me to hold your head as you sat up, to hold your hand as you walked, to hold the spoon as you ate, to jog beside your bicycle, to catch a falling roller skater, to run beside your scooter, to sit beside your bed, to read a story till you sleep, to run my finger under every letter, to mouth each word you read. How strange it is this feeling, swaddling you in love, just to help you leave. I'm going to call my mum, I think. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> do. Please do. <laughs> I've got to say, somebody did tell me actually that the average age of um, girls leaving home is 18, but the average age of boys leaving home is 35. So maybe if you've got a son, that's not so relevant, that, that one. Um, well, I'll do two more. So this is called Parent Bench. And um, it's one of the things that I've found hardest having a child apart from the sort of sleepless nights, but I've had about six years where you sort of take your kid to a park and you help them to play with other kids and then you just sit and watch them play whilst you're sitting, making the most awkward conversation with other parents that you don't know. So uh, I've definitely been both of these people. And for anyone that doesn't know, in this poem it refers to Tesco's, which is a massive supermarket, and Staples, which is a massive stationery shop. Can tell it's gonna be exciting. <laughs> Parent bench. Sitting on the bench, as the children take turns, floating on the zip wire, legs thrashing at the sky. You ask me if I know there's a new Tesco opening up on the Andover Road. No, I say, I don't. Yes, you continue. Bigger than the Tesco's on the high street, but not as big as the Tesco's in the retail park, of course. You laugh. I laugh. Of course. Sitting on the bench as the children make their way from the zip wire to the roundabout, from the roundabout to the seesaw, from the seesaw to the swings, from the swings to the treetops, from the treetops to the clouds, from the clouds, and back down into a frantic game of hide and seek. You tell me that the new Tesco is on the site where Staples used to be. I say, oh really? You say yes. You ask if I ever used to shop in that Staples. I say I did, because I did. I bought my printer paper there. You say that's lucky. Tesco sells printer paper. And this is the final one, so thank you very much for having me in this beautiful place. Um, this is called To the 78-year-old woman chatting to me on the train the entire way from London to Liverpool, which is almost a four-hour journey. There was no need to apologise for taking up my time. We talk about your grandsons and how you had to catch the train alone now since your husband died. How you do not really like it, but how it's nice to get a tea. And when the trolley comes again, perhaps you'll treat me to a biscuit. How you met him at a dance. How well he did the two-step. How you still turn your head when something funny comes on telly, as if he still sat in his chair, though it's been empty near ten years. How I remind you of your daughter. How nice to still be young. How your children think you're daft. How your hips have given up. How cheap you got your coat in the discount winter sale. Truth is, I spied you first. And desperate for company, I took that table seat in the hope you'd be as talkative as me. Holly McNish, Michael Peterson, thank you so much for dropping into Shakespeare and Company today. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much, Adam. It's been a pleasure and a dream. Yeah, it has. Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app, or just by recommending us to your friends. And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, you can subscribe now through Spotify, Apple or Patreon for just three euros a month.
Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by our resident jazz supremo, Alex Fryman, whose album Play It Gentle is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. I'll be back soon. Until then, take care, stay safe, and thanks again for listening.